Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and now the Joe Biden presidency. We will be looking at how a 78-year-old president will change America and we'll be asking if normalcy, which is what he promised to bring, has returned to American politics. The answer, of course, is no. I'm joined today by Helen Andrews, who is senior editor at The American Conservative and the author of a fantastic new book called Boomers, The Men and Women Who Promised Freedom and Delivered Disaster. Before we start, Helen, I'd just like to say congratulations on the book. It's absolutely brilliant. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I highly recommend every Americano listener buys it because it's the best book I've read, well, in quite a while, actually. So... That's the plug there. But I would also <laughs> like to start by talking about a little bit about American politics at the moment. And of course, last week we had this very dramatic moment, the storming of the Capitol, when a lot of Trump fans, Trump supporters broke into Congress. And it's caused a lot of aggravation and a lot of upset in American politics. But there was one video I saw that made me think about your book, and it was this chap who, he was a boomer, definitely a boomer, who was standing in his leather jacket in the Senate rotunda smoking a joint. And the reporter came up to him and asked him why he was smoking weed. In fact, we can listen to that clip now. How come you're smoking weed in the uh, Capitol? Because I can. Let's see if, let's see Life sucks. I'm probably going to get in trouble again. Well, that seems to me an amazingly boomer moment. And in fact, if you look at the sort of chaos of American politics at the moment, it's exactly what your book is talking about. We have been left disaster by the generation. I'm a millennial, I think, like you, sort of near X, but a millennial. We've been left a disaster by the boomer generation. And we're increasingly angry about it, aren't we? I'm quite angry. I feel as if we're trapped in a, in a boomer-run society, trapped in a boomer moment. I felt that way for years, but all the more so ever since the riots over this last summer and the storming of the Capitol was really the cherry on top of that Sunday. It was the boomers reenacting their great triumphant moment of the 1960s. For some reason, so many decades later, the 60s is still everyone's idea of what politics should look like. And Abby Hoffman and his band storming the Pentagon or uh, the weatherman detonating a bomb in the Capitol. Something about rebellion in the seat of government just activates the boomers' pleasure centers. But I'm not surprised they're lashing out. We're about to see the end of our last boomer president. So that's something to be thankful for. Ever since Bill Clinton, it has been a boomer in the White House, but Joe Biden is a pre-boomer. He was born in World War II and still says things like malarkey, so is, is definitely a bit more old-fashioned. So perhaps that's what's going on. The boomers are lashing out as they see their, their rule coming to an end. Well, I wondered that. but I, I want to ask you, do you think Joe Biden was elected, was nominated and then elected because he's not a boomer? He's, he's from this silent generation and people can project onto him values that he may or may not have, but he, he doesn't feel boomerish. There was even an element of that to Donald Trump, who, who was not boomerish in quite the same way as a quintessential boomer like Bill Clinton. He's a little more old-fashioned in his own strange way. But with Biden, that's definitely a big part of the appeal. And of course, 
Kamala Harris is uh, born in 1964, so she squeaks into the dictionary definition of a boomer, but she listens or pretends to listen to hip-hop and Tupac, which is much more Gen X. So if she assumes the mantle after Biden leaves the presidency, then we'll skip straight from greatest generation Biden to Gen X Kamala with no more boomers in sight. Here's hoping, I suppose. But the question I wanted to ask you was you, you chose... How many, how many of them choose? There's six? Six, yes. Six. And it is uh, Steve Jobs, Jeffrey Sachs, I'm going to get the audio wrong, but Al Sharpton, Camille Paglia. Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin, of course. That was my favourite one. And Sonia Sotomayor is the last and one. And Sonia Sotomayor. How did you choose these ones? And was there anyone that you wanted to put in? I should explain, sorry, for people who haven't heard, that the book is divided up into chapters. You've taken inspiration from... Lytton Strachey's Eminent Victorians, and you've picked on six boomers that, for you, I think, exemplify the horror that they've <laughs> that they represent. Well, my first goal was to get a good spread. Yes, uh, because you've got somebody from law and Hollywood and ac- academia. Well, I noticed that you, you. I mean, people have mentioned this. There isn't really a conservative on there, and there are, there is a strong conservative boomer faction. Well, the boomers are certainly. Not every boomer is a liberal, but the boomer legacy is very liberal. Though it's, it's funny you mentioned conservatives and, and people on that side of the spectrum. There were some profilees who got away, some people that I wanted to study and either just didn't have time or could, didn't have room for. The one that I really wanted to do was the financier Michael Milken, the junk bond king. Because if you're telling the story of the second half of the 20th century, finance and Wall Street has to be a big part of it. And the hook that makes him such a compelling character, you know, on top of the fraud and going to prison, which is always good copy, is the fact that he graduated from UC Berkeley in 1968. So Milken was there at the height of the free speech movement and the the sort of epicenter of 1960s protest and has always said that something about that experience shaped him. He saw himself as a, as a rebel and an individualist in his own way, which I'm, I'm not sure the new left would, would be very happy to claim him, but he's, he's a great example of why it's hard to sort the boomers between left-wing and right-wing, because even people who are way out on the right-wing end of the spectrum, like Milken, you know, Wall Street sharks still think of themselves as plucky Berkeley rebels. Yeah, yeah. I suppose this sort of revolutionary mindset, it isn't taken off in between the generations. I mean, millennials still have this mindset. When when I was a teenager, Rage Against the Machine was a band that everybody listened to. And I'd say that defines a lot of my friends' politics, and perhaps mine sometimes, that, you know, you're constantly feeling... That you that there's a system and you've got to overturn it, and that is a boomer inheritance, is it not? Yes, the boomer obsession with rebellion, with youth, which is why they they still listen today to Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones. They they're the boomers are the first generation that felt no need to graduate to to grown up music. They they keep listening to the pop of their youth well into their sixties, but the millennials have only ever known boomers in a position of authority. To a millennial, the boomers are the establishment. So that's what motivated me to write the book, really, was annoyance at the boomer hypocrisy. Because even though 
the boomers are now the establishment. They're not the plucky young rebels anymore. They still want to pose as if they are. And something about that hypocrisy and sanctimony on their part was just so grating. I had to write a book about it. And do you think they've deprived us of being able to make our own culture because all of our culture is is mimetic of, of theirs? Oh, absolutely. I My friends in high school were not really listening to Rage Against the Machine when I looked at their, you know, army jackets with patches sewn onto them and their messenger bags with musical, you know, pop music tat on the side. It was all bands like Pink Floyd and mm. Black Sabbath. <laughs> and I remember finding it so bizarre that these, the, the very kids in class who most styled themselves rebels were listening to their parents' music. The millennials do. They, we have failed to move on culturally and it's baffling to me. Do you think that we are reaching a moment? I mean, there's your book, there's Christopher Caldwell's Age of Entitlement, which I know you were partly inspired by, and there's Ross Douthat's book about the age of decadence. Do you think we're reaching a moment where, I realise it's just a small selection of conservative writers, but there is an anger now at the boomer generation, and we're kind of, we've reached a tipping point, and, and we're perhaps in a reactionary moment. I dearly hope so. I think the the three books you mentioned are hopefully the beginning of a trend because you mentioned Lytton Strachey and and his book Eminent Victorians, which was the model that I took. But the tragedy of Strachey's book is that by the time he wrote it in 1918, all of his eminent Victorians were long dead. So it is is a source of great consolation to me that the anti-boomer backlash is coming while the boomers are still around, because it would be terribly tragic if we were to realize just how wrong and awful and destructive the boomers were after they'd already gone. I, I, want, I want them to hear it themselves. Do you think we can have an effective backlash against the boomers without a serious religious revival, without a return to traditional forms of religion, in particular Christianity? That will be necessary, but it's a lot more difficult now than it would have been even just a a few decades earlier. The tragedy of the millennial generation, as I see it, is that on the one hand, we know not to make the boomers mistakes. We, We can see how wrong they were, and we know we need to make better choices. But on the other hand, very frequently, it's harder for us to make better choices than the boomers, even when we know we should. 20% of millennials, or or maybe a little bit more than that, report having been raised in no religion at all. For boomers, it was only 5%. Most boomers, for all of their anti-religious iconoclasm, had been raised in some kind of faith tradition. So when they, if they ever decided they wanted to return to it, they had those resources and those memories and those instincts to draw on. Millennials very frequently reach middle age, a time when a lot of people realize that a life lived without faith is pointless and empty and they decide they want some religion in their lives. But if they were raised in no religion, as so many millennials were, then it's really hard to just jumpstart a faith life or a prayer life in middle age without any kind of muscle memory of what it means to be a religious person to, to start with. So we know that a religious revival is one of the things we need to correct the boomers' errors, but it's hard for us to pull it off because we don't have those 
resources and that background to draw on. Do you think that there's there's been the, this growth of something that people call the intellectual dark web, rather annoyingly? And what that movement really is, is people making rather sort of obvious points about free speech and against the progressive woke mindset. Do you think that's a sort of early rumbling of a revolution against the 60s revolution? That's not the way I've seen the intellectual dark web, which I agree is a a stupid name. One of the chapters of the book, the first chapter, in fact, after the introduction, is about Steve Jobs and Silicon Valley. And the IDW always struck me as mapping onto a, a conflict you see very frequently in Silicon Valley at big companies like Facebook or Google. The boomers who founded these companies had quite enlightened and cheerful and benign sort of hippie-ish free speech views. But the millennials who are the lower-end staffers in their companies now have much more hard-edged, woke views. And the benign boomer founders are rather helpless in the face of this millennial aggression. And the millennials have no mercy for the boomers, no matter how nice and pleasant the IDW is. So I see that I won't say milk toast, but bland free speech ideology, not as the first wave of something new, but as the the remnant and the relic of those boomer founders with their old-fashioned views that will be swept away by the woke and then replaced with some other third thing. So sort of the hippies versus the Maoists or something, that's what you see it as? Well, it's the pattern of every revolution in history. You have the nice, idealistic revolutionaries at the beginning, and then they get overthrown and and eaten by the fanatics. It's interesting that, because, I mean, I should be clear about the book, it's not all scorn, is it? I mean, you actually have some sympathy with Jobs and admiration for Jobs, and I'd say Camille Paglia, because they left something behind. That's right, and Aaron Sorkin as well. There's no one in the book for whom I have only contempt. Even I find nice things to say about Al Sharpton which I, I wasn't sure I would as I undertook to write that chapter. Yes. But though it, it, is, it is precisely the fact that Steve Jobs was able to leave something behind. He was an institution builder. He wanted to make a company that would bear his imprint even after he was gone. And that's certainly true of Apple. But the boomers as a generation were institution destroyers. So Steve Jobs was exceptional in that way. Mm. Let's talk about Aaron Sorkin a bit, because I was amazed. I'd never heard that story before of, I'll say it, I hope it doesn't take anything away from your book to do so. The Obama administration, after Obama won a second term, correct me if I get some of this wrong, they all thought that they had to hand in their resignations by letter. And they were looking for some sort of precedent as to how this should go. They they weren't quite sure what what the actual process was. And then they realised that there was no process because they'd just seen it on the West Wing. And that was where they got their idea of government from. That story blew my mind because it seems to perfectly sum up the Obama administration and also this sort of West Wing idea of politics, the TV show, The West Wing, which Sorkin wrote. And I mean, it exactly sums up this sort of fantasy world that a lot of boomers seem to live in. And there's nothing wrong with fantasy. And if that were all that the West Wing was, I would, uh, it would just be my guilty pleasure and, and nothing wrong with that. The trouble comes not with the West Wing itself, but with how revered it is by people in Washington. As you say, there were people in the Obama White House 
who thought of themselves first and foremost as characters in their own private West Wing drama. And that's not, that's not the attitude that I want my ruling class to have. They, they say that Gene Sperling, who was an economic advisor to President Obama, says that the president himself at one point turned to him during the 2013 shutdown and said, you know what I should do? I should do what President Bartlett did and walk down to the Capitol on foot. Good grief. Well, I remember in Britain, we had Ed Miliband, who was a very ineffective Labour leader, and his team used to always say, well, what we're going to try and do is let Miliband be Miliband, which is a line from Let Bartlett Be Bartlett, which I think is an episode in The West Wing. And then Miliband was Miliband, and it was a disaster. (laughs) That was my memory of that. But I, I suppose... What I want to know is, are you optimistic? The last bit of your book, you talk about the millennials and and obviously you feel we've, our generation, generation below now are so kind of spoiled by the sexual revolution, saturated in pornography and adult really, that it's a very bleak outlook. I don't like ending on a positive note, so don't feel you have to. But do you see reasons to be cheerful? No, I I do not. (laughs) And in fact, I I, uh, was looking for reasons to be cheerful as I was writing, putting the finishing touches on the manuscript over this last autumn, just as the riots of the summer were dwindling. And I wondered, should I make it more optimistic? Perhaps the riots of this last summer were just an episode. And by the time the book comes out, everyone will have forgotten about them and things will be back to normal and it'll be all right and safe. Well, That is not, in fact, how the world looked when the book came out just this week in January. January was, if anything, worse than the summer. So (laughs) pessimism was justified on my part from the perspective of last fall looking at the coming winter. And I feel no more optimistic on a longer time scale. I I, I hate to to end on such a dark note. That's right. That's right. I mean, I think we should. Also, actually, let's let's end talking about the media because we can always be rude about the media. I think you could maybe say it's not necessarily the boomers' fault. It's the technology that they evolved with in that they were the first age of mass media. So it's no wonder they became narcissistic. They're a victim of the technologies just as the young generation are a victim of the newer technologies. Willing victims. And that, that sort of increases their moral culpability I quite enjoyed going back and reading all of the doomsayers who thought television was going to ruin civilization. There were lots of them in the 1950s. I I read Richard Hogarth's Uses of Literacy, and it became my new favorite book. And of course, back then, everybody wrote off the anti-TV doomsayers as fuddy-duddies and curmudgeons who just didn't like the new medium because it was new and were overrating its importance. It can't possibly be a revolution on par with the invention of the printing press. Well, we've had 70 years to look back on it now, and I think that the doomsayers have been thoroughly vindicated. They said that TV would rot the boomers' brains, and so it did. And it's the boomers' fault. It's their weakness that they're unable to recognize it precisely because TV has addled them so thoroughly. Helen, on that note, thank you for being so refreshingly bleak. And (laughs) it's uh, a great pleasure to talk to you again and well done again on the book. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano. And I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite.